if you could, please open your Bibles to Amos chapter 8. I don't know how to take the prayer at the at the beginning there that, you know, that God would bless me in my preparations. I'm thankful that he does. Though one of the dangers of preaching through minor prophets, as I'm preaching through right now, is that to be blessed to hear the word of God means that you're going to be um, convicted. And that kind of is the situation that we run into here. Amos chapter 8 As you can tell, it's not the beginning of the book. It's near the end. We've gone through a whole bunch of stuff between the beginning and now. Reading through a minor prophet that isn't recent, I should be able to get distance between myself and the text. You know, you should be able to kind of try to ignore parts of what God is saying through his word. But I have to admit this week, I have learned that God is literally telling us the truth when he says that his word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to to the intentions of men, to my intentions. We look at Amos today and we recognize, we remember a bunch of things about Amos. Amos was writing at the time of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember correctly, the northern kingdom of Israel was created by Jeroboam I after uh, David's grandson, Solomon's son, was a bit of an idiot and listened to his best friends instead of listening to the wise counsel of people around him and ended up splitting the kingdom. The northern kingdom, trying to gets separated from the southern kingdom, moves north. And to avoid having unity between the northern and southern kingdom, the northern king, Jeroboam I, creates a semi-false religion. He takes the same religion that we see in the Bible and just adds a couple of things so that people don't go down to the temple in Jerusalem and get unified as a single kingdom anymore. He creates a new religion, just slightly off of the old religion. Well, at this point, it's been several hundred years later. The people have gone their way, as people are wont to do. The northern kingdom has gone into all sorts of interesting depravity, as we've seen through Amos chapter 1 to 7. And God, in the midst of that, sends a guy, uh, essentially a, a, a tree trimmer from a town called Tekoa, up north to go to the center of the northern kingdom's religion and to preach the word of God. Among terrible jobs you can have in reality, this is probably one of the worst. To go before a king, to go before people who you know will not listen to you and will in fact hate you. And that is what Amos does. And we saw in Amos chapter 7 
how people accused him and told him to go away, tried to get the king to silence him, and Amos still spoke the truth of God. And we saw why he did that. Because Amos was bound by what God had said. He couldn't be scared of, he couldn't afford to be scared of the king of the northern kingdom because he's more scared of God. He wanted to see God's word go forth. And because of that, he had the motivation to stand up in front of even people who were much, much more powerful than he was. We saw that in chapter 7. The problem is, desires have a bit of a problem for us generally. They, they guide us, they help us, they make us do things. French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal puts it this way back in the 17th century. All men seek happiness. He wasn't gender inclusive in his language, I, I'm sorry. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and the cause of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to its object. This is the motive of every action, every man, even those who hang themselves. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to have their desires met. The problem is going to be everybody has different ideas about what's going to provide that kind of ultimate joy. Amos knew that ultimate joy was to be found in God. That's why he was able to do the things that he was doing. But he was not common, as is honestly the case usually. And this is kind of the problem that I'm facing as I stand before you here. See, I'm not sure my desires are, are much better than the people that Amos is speaking to sometimes. But we'll get to that. So as we get into Ju Amos chapter 8, we're going, I'm going to go th basically through the text, point by point, all the way through. And I'm going to be pointing out some things along the way. Some things that have some gravity to them. Amos begins in verse 1. Well, continuing on from the other rest of the text. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. God is clear here. If you remember in chapter 7, there were two instances where God had said, I'm going to bring judgment and destruction upon Israel. And Amos said, please don't. They're just so small, they'll never be able to handle it. And God relents. Well, God will relent no more. The judgment is coming. 
Why is the judgment coming? Amos continues in verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances? that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Now, we should probably slow down a bit here. There's a way that I think is pretty current to try and distance ourselves from the people of Israel here in this section. I mean, after all, most of us don't sell wheat. Anybody here wheat merchants? There were no hands up, so I guess no, no, no wheat merchants here. Uh, so you're probably not going to be selling chaff. You're probably not going to be uh, buying and selling slaves is illegal in North America at this point in history. So you're not going to be doing that, probably. And so we can imagine that this text has really very little to do with us. May I recommend we s- slow down a bit? Notice a couple of things about these people. First of all, they're saying, when will the new moon be over and the Sabbath over that we may do these things? I think the first and foremost thing we should probably notice, these are religious people. If you want to find the people that Amos is talking to, the the people that Amos is saying God will destroy, that God is irate with, He doesn't say, go out into the um, highways and byways and don't go downtown looking for the people drunk on the corners. Don't go there. Go to church. Go to the church and see these people. These people who desire, well, that's the problem, desire wealth more than they desire God. You can see that in a couple of ways. First of all, they don't want to be uh, kind. They don't want to be dealing with truth. They want to deal with false balances and be deceitful. They want to be seen as religious, as you can see, because they actually go to church. They actually observe the things that are being done here. They observe the new moons. They observe the Sabbaths, which were, which were festivals in the northern kingdom's religious ideas. They actually followed the religion. They did the right stuff, at least from the surface. If you were talking, if you were looking around, you'd see them as godly people in suits just as nice or nicer than mine. Maybe some of them standing in pulpits talking about one another. And let's be careful here. It's easy to be able to say that, well, maybe they were just faking it, but it looks, if you go down a little further into Amos, that these people are actually kind of deceived. Look at Amos 8.14, just down at the bottom of the chapter. God is continuing to damn the, the false religion that they have and says, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. They're in part of a, they're part of community. They actually talk to one another. 
They actually encourage one another to follow their strange false religion. They're talking to each other about what their version of God is. And yet, for all of this, for all of their time spent trying to follow all the festivals, for all of their time spent encouraging one another with mere words, we can see that their hearts are far from God. It's easy to see it. God, throughout the scriptures, it's really hard to miss if you read your Bible at all. God cares about the poor. God cares about justice. If we as believers don't, that's because we're not following God, because God cares about these things. And yet, for some reason, these people had convinced themselves that they could be in these situations and following this stuff and honestly not obey God when it comes to something that God says correctly. It's a problem that, that Jesus will talk about later in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. You remember the place. He's talking about the Pharisees at that point. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Or Isaiah 29.13, which is what's being quoted in Matthew 15. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. See, this is the part that scares me. How much of my religiosity, my showing up on a Sunday morning, making sure that everything is, is right, doing the work beforehand, and, and I thought of this while I was actually preparing my sermon, how much of this is because I really want to see Jesus glorified and how much of it is because I have some other desire, maybe the desire to pe for people to like me, the desire for uh, a paycheck, a desire for, I don't know, to be seen as a good, uh, good solid pastor or to have friends. How much of it is those things and not a desire to see you my brothers and sisters come to know and see the Lord. And I got to be honest, sometimes it's both. My, my heart isn't as pure as I'd like it to be. And as we're seeing here in Amos chapter 8, you can be a very religious person and have a lot of religious sounding ideas but not actually be seeking the true God. As with the people in, of Israel in Amos' day, we can define God through our own desires, by our own desires, instead of seeing and desiring the real God. We can try to tailor God to meet our felt needs. 
when God calls us to see him and find that our true needs are met in him. The people of Amos's day were, were, were following along in something that had been happening for centuries. Remember what I said, Jeroboam I created the religion of the northern kingdom so that he, the people would still have some semblance of God, but without having to be part of the, 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 the situation that God had created through his temple to be a shadow of the coming Christ. He had created, they had created their own religion for this. And the danger with that is that as you create a religion to meet your own felt needs, the felt needs of Jeroboam I in that case, other people then take that on and start creating their own religion to meet their felt needs. I, 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 want, I want people to like me, so I'll create a religion where people have to like me for doing the right things. I, I, I really want to be rich, so I'll create a religion that will make me rich. In case you're interested, both of those exist as real types of Christianity in the world today. Uh, I'm not going to point you to them because they're both damnable heresy. But I have to be careful here because I'm worried in my own heart that I find it easy to do this. It's common theological reasoning, something that, some, that I've even said in my own lips. My God could never, and then I'll say something that the Bible actually teaches. My, my God could never damn someone to hell for all eternity. I'm sorry, the Bible says that. I would prefer my God didn't say that. I really would. But here's the problem. He does. And there's always that temptation in my heart at that moment to be able to say, well, I'll just change this little bit about what God reveals of himself. I'll just change this little bit. This little bit that I don't like. It doesn't just stem from that side of the aisle. I, I tend to be a more... Uh, I'm a bleeding heart liberal at heart. I know that's hard to believe, but I am. And that's the way I'm tempted. But I've seen the temptation work in other ways. Think about it this way. I really don't like those people who insert sin here. Um, oftentimes, maybe, who are bleeding heart liberals. So my God would never accept into his kingdom a bleeding heart liberal. Well, congratulations, you just joined them. You created God in your image to try and create a world, create a church, create a, create a religion that meets your own standards, not God's. And it doesn't really matter if you're the, following the liberal God of intolerant tolerance where it's okay, you need to agree on that everything is okay, or you're not okay, or the conservative God of intolerant tolerance. You, you need to do whatever rules we think are good, but if you keep your sin quiet, as long as you keep your sin quiet, if your sin gets known, we'll, we'll get rid of you. 
But as long as you hide your sin, we'll, we'll say you're okay. It doesn't matter. Either way, both of those are false religions. Both of those are false ways to follow God. Both of those are, I would submit, doing what the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were doing in the time of Amos. Creating a God in their image and using that God to validate their own evil. And then slowly becoming less and less willing to follow through with traditions that don't fit their false God. You see the big problem with these gods we create? These false gods that are desired, designed to make us feel better and to make us uh, more acceptable in our own eyes? Well, first of all, they don't exist. My God could never do X. Well, that's because my God, that God doesn't exist. Of course he could never do that. But more importantly... There is a real God. There is a real God who reveals himself in his word. There is a real God who has spoken through history in the prophets and ultimately through his son. There is a true God. And yet we find ourselves choosing these lesser gods of our own design. And by the way, they have to be lesser gods. Talking about a perfect God you create a new God that's different from a perfect God, different from perfect means less than perfect. Because there's no such thing as greater than perfect. A little bit of logic there. And this is why we see in Amos chapter 8 verses 7 to 10 how God is reacting. It's not a limited thing that he says. He says this in chapter chapter 8 verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob... Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'm sure that's not directly to me there on that one. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. God takes this kind of creation we do very, very seriously. Our creation of false gods is something that he cares about deeply. But why? Why would he care that I am creating a false god and believing it? Why would he care that, you know, I'm teaching other people to believe this false god? Well, first of all, I'm lying about God. I call the God of my own creation the true God. And then I give people a God that isn't as glorious as the one we meet in Scripture. 
I create a lesser God and pawn it off as the real God. I'm, I'm sure the real God would find that difficult, well, angering. Worse, though, as I create a God in my own image, as I alter God to match my own viewpoints, my own desires, I help other people to avoid the real God. You see, the vast majority of people in the world don't know about the God we know in Scripture. There are going to be very few people this morning who are going to be in any church at all, let alone a church that are, that's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much worse is it that we as believers create a God that fits our own prejudices rather than the real God? More than just causing problems for us, we are, t we are denying the world the true gospel of the true God who loves them. Right now, there are people that are lost in their own sin and their own suffering and their own mistakes, their own fears. All things that would be solved if only they could come to see the true God, the one revealed in Jesus Christ. But we're too busy lying to them. Pretending that our God is more about, I don't know, making us feel good about ourselves than that God is about coming to them and where they are and loving them and calling them to himself. Yeah, God would be mad at that. Serving the, also, he's going to be mad because serving the gods of our own desire steals worship from the real God. As we spend our time thanking the false God of our own creation for whatever false creation we've created, we're not praising the true God for who he really is. We're not looking and seeing and savoring God for the gloriousness of who he is. The people of Israel were worshiping a false God, a God similar to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but subtly changed to be more affirming of their politics. And slowly to their own temptations. Serving the gods of our own desires blocks the path to the true God. I remember many years ago when I first came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess something here. So, you know, safety and, and, and counselors, you guys don't need to spread this around much, but. My false god was tolerance. I'd say this phrase fairly regularly. I'm going to err on the side of love. I remember saying it. 
I remember disagreeing with people who, you know, would actually would be kind of like me now. And saying, well, if I'm wrong, God will forgive me. Because, you know, I'm erring on the side of love. The big question I, ha I failed to ask is love for whom? See, I didn't love God when I was saying that. I wasn't actually saying, I need to know the true God and I want to love the true God. I want to know him and I want to see him. No, I was saying, I don't want to actually believe in a God that would disagree with me. And that's not God, that's just me. Worse, though, is that love of my neighbor? I'm afraid not. You see, I have to be honest. When I was dealing with that, I was, when I was talking like that, I wanted people to like me. I know it's hard to believe, given how handsome, intelligent, and witty I am, that, you know, not everybody immediately likes me. But I struggled with that for a long time in my life. And so as a result, I would try to say things and do things so that people would like me. And that's, that, that's fine for some things, you know, like you, you probably should shower so that people don't get put, put off by your smell. You should do that. You probably shouldn't say rude stuff so that people get mad at you for saying rude stuff. Probably a good thing. You shouldn't lie to them about things that are really dangerous, things that are really harmful, so that they don't won't dislike you for telling them that. Sadly, I didn't know the difference, and so I would create God in my own image and make God a method for people to like me. And so I helped people ignore the truth of what God said. And again, as I said, this is not actually the only problem that can happen. This is the easy one. We're, we're in a pretty conservative church, so a lot of people here are going to kind of empathize with my understanding there. That's going to be common. But there is an equal and opposite error. Still an error, still just as bad. You can believe that you are so amazing, so profoundly great, that everybody should be just like you, or God won't love them. That's just as bad. It might be worse. Actually, there are people, and we can fall into it, who will create a version of God. I'd actually say the people of Israel in, in Amos' time probably knew this. You see, they used their religion to hate on their brothers to the south, just like the brothers in the south used their religion to hate on their brothers in the north. We can create religion and rules and things like that to make ourselves more acceptable to ourselves. This is, this is where legalism comes in. 
I, get a, I come up with a set of rules. You follow these rules and you'll be okay. You'll be acceptable to everybody else in this church, to me and everyone else. As long as you don't ever let anybody else know that you struggle with stuff. The result being that you have a, a religion that seems very Christian, and yet you're using it specifically to subjugate others, to make them love, well, a set of rules that you've created. Like Jesus said, teaching as, teaching as doctrine the rules of man. God punishes this. And here then comes the greatest punishment that we see. I wish Amos was more uplifting usually. I got to say that. This is, this is very, there's a lot of gravity to this. I, I, I'm sorry, I wish it was nicer. But there is a greater punishment. And don't worry, we will get to some joy in a few minutes. Because the gospel is good. The gospel is glorious. The gospel is life-changing. It is far greater than this false religion. And God has given it to us. But first we need to see the greatest, the greatest punishment that the Lord can give us. Amos chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander sea to sea, and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. And some of you are thinking right now, what the heck? That, that, that's not very terrifying. That just means that you don't hear God. Uh, you should be terrified by that. You see, we live in a world where for a long time, the, the belief in God the understanding of the Bible and those kinds of things have kind of worked their way into our culture. There are a whole raft of things that we as a society believe that are completely grounded in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Really, we do. Weird things like the rule of law. Things like human rights. Things like a belief in good and evil. When, when, when Frederick Nietzsche wrote his book about, you know, why him becoming not a Christian anymore, he wrote the book called it Beyond Good and Evil. Because he believed that we would be, that he was beyond good and evil. Because good and evil are based in the existence of God. Really. Don't, don't take my words for it. I'm not the only one who sees this. Uh, just read some historians, you know, like Tom Holland, the historian, not the actor. Commentators like Doug Murray. Or, as Matthew Paris put it in the Times of London on December 27th of 2008, he wrote this. 
Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. That's an atheist speaking. Sometimes I think that we as believers are so hopelessly inured of the mind-blowing goodness of what the gospel does for us that we forget just how important it is that we know Jesus, that we hear from God. Most of us have, for most of our lives, had some sense of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and so we forget that that, how important that is. And we're not righteously terrified by the possibility of not hearing from God. God is glorious. He really is. The knowledge of God really is that good. It really does do amazing things in your heart. And the fact is, so often we forget what the word of God does in our hearts because, well, we've just forgotten it. So often we don't think about the person we were before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we imagine that I'm not that different from what I was before Christ took hold of me. Except I am. I really am. Sometimes we forget just the huge difference it makes to know God. To know the God that you see in Scripture. To be able to read the Word of God and to hear from God. It sometimes becomes so bad that we turn Bible reading into a chore we do daily. You, you know, kind of like making your bed. Well, I'll read my Bible and, read my, and, and make my bed. Not spending the time to marinate in it, to hear from God through it. We just make it a book with words instead of what it is, the word of God speaking to us. So we don't get terrified when God promises that there will come a day when there will be no word from him. We should be terrified from, of that. And do you know how I know we're not terrified of that? How I know that I'm not terrified of that, not hearing from the Lord? I don't read my Bible properly. And by that I don't mean, you know, like I don't, uh, I don't have a whole bunch of study aids behind me. Sometimes I find myself just reading it like I read any other book. As if it's not 
Well, <laughs> living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword like I started with. Sometimes I imagine that the Bible isn't useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God might be prepared for every good work. And yet it is. Sometimes I think the Bible is a way for me to be smarter than everybody else, to seem smarter than everybody else, instead of what it is, a way, a method by which God works in my life by his Holy Spirit to change me from one degree of glory into another. By the way, in case you're wondering, all of those things I've talked, I just said, they're Bible verses that point out what God is promising that his word does in our lives. It should be terrifying to us that there might be a time when we will live in a place where people will not know God. We will not hear from God. We will not spend time understanding God where we might not actually have the word of God to read and to, to listen to. And this is all what was happening to the people of Israel 3,000 years ago. So what do we do with this? What do we do today? I got a few things. First of all, we need to repent and seek the real God. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, I mean this with all the sincerity and all the seriousness I can muster. Open your Bible. Open it. In fact, I, I, and I mean that, I'm trying to think of the words here because I don't want you to just open it and just have it there. Read it. And don't just read it. Marinate on it. If you have questions about the word of God as you read it, ask. First of all, ask God. Ask your brothers and sisters who go to your life groups and who have time reading it. Ask me or Pastor Steve or your elders. That's what we're here for. I'm actually paid so that I'll know my Bible really, really well so that when you ask questions, if I don't know the answer, I can go back somewhere and study to find the answer. Read your Bible. But don't just read it, too, as a method of getting head knowledge. Understand what the word of God is. When it says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, he uses the word theanostos. Literally, God-breathing. Same type of thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. So brothers and sisters, when you open the word of God, recognizing that God is talking to you, Do you realize how amazing that is? We say that we want to hear from God, and yet we don't open our Bibles. 
That's like saying, I want to call my mom, but never pick up the phone. I'm going to email my best friend, but I'll never actually turn on my computer. That's dumb. We have the word of God. We have... We are not in a place where we don't have the ability to hear from God. God has not punished us this way yet. God has not taken his word from us yet. So let's read it. Open your Bibles. Second, through the word that you see, the word that you read, Turn to Christ. Do you want to know God? Not the, not the God that you make up. Not the God that you desire to create so that it'll fit your standards. Well, the word of God says that he's Jesus Christ. Find Jesus Christ in the word of God. Because he's everywhere. In fact, these, it's, it's really easy to find Jesus in the word of God Open the word of God, read it. There, there you go, you found Jesus. Congratulations. Use the word of God as a method to know God. Seek God through his word. The third. Seek to be transformed by the word. Uh, I, uh, it wouldn't be me preaching if I didn't have some Romans in it. So here's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Real problem, real thing that you can have happen. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, right now, most of you have in front of you the very words of God. And it doesn't matter what translation you're using. It doesn't matter whether you're reading the Greek or the Hebrew. It you have the words of God in front of you. You can see God. You can learn of God. You can hear from him. Don't go to your word trying to find the things that you agree with and the things you don't agree with. There will be parts you disagree with. Where you disagree with what this Bible says, no offense, you're wrong. Change your opinion. Don't try to change the word. I guess, ultimately, the, the thing that we need to see in Amos 8 is the same message that Amos was preaching to the people of his time. Repent and turn to God. And I guess that's where, that's where we should end. Because he is glorious. The time is now. He is willing to hear from us. Now is the time of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, let's turn to him. Let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that right now we are not in a famine of your word. You have given us the ability to turn to you. Yet, Lord, we so often have tried to create you in our image. We've tried to move the word of God to fit whatever standards we have. Lord God, I beg you, give us hearts that will be transformed by you. Give us mouths that will seek to praise you, hearts that will seek after you, eyes that will look to you and be changed by you. Oh Lord God, may our opinions be changed, be malleable in the face of the truth that you teach. So we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name.